this life-changing decision, you know it's life-changing, in the white heat of the shock and distress of the diagnosis. And that is incredibly difficult to do. And so if anybody deserves emotional and psychological support, it's women and couples that have been through this. Welcome to Time to Talk, TFMR, Termination for Medical Reasons. Thank you everyone for joining us. This is our very first episode. We're really excited, a little bit nervous, if I'm being perfectly honest. I'm Hayley Manning. And I'm Catherine Rasley. And we're also going to be joined by Jane Fisher, who is the Director of Antenatal Results and Choices, or ARC for short. I wanted to really thank you, the listeners, for choosing this podcast to listen to and this podcast is for you so we really do want to hear from you we want to hear your experiences uh, we want to hear your thoughts on tfmr we want to hear your ideas of what we should be talking about and you can find us on instagram at time to talk tfmr and you can also email us at talktfmr at yahoo.com I also wanted to just acknowledge that if you're listening to this, this is probably because either you are being faced with a decision of TFMR or you have recently undergone TFMR or have had a TFMR in the past. And I just wanted to send out, I know Catherine and I would both want to send out a heartfelt, um, just our heartfelt warm wishes. And, you know, this is, a, it's a crap thing and we'll be... <sighs> <laughs> we'll be discovering Back all with a that. capital thing. Yeah, it's pretty shit. So um, we're here to offer support and information and show solidarity and hope as well. So thank you for listening. Um, I thought when we were talking about planning this, I thought it would be maybe good to talk about how Catherine and I first met. And um, we met about just over a year ago, wasn't it, Catherine? It's a bit longer than that. July, a bit longer July 2019, I think. Yeah. And that was at Jess's Baby Loss Hour Live at the Legacy of Leo. And um, we met there and uh, we were sat in the audience and we didn't know we were on the same sofa together. And they were talking about maternal mental health or mental health after the loss of a baby. And Catherine, I know that's a very um, passionate issue for you. And your, I don't remember if your hand went up or you just, this energy all of a sudden came from the other end of the sofa of, of you sort of going, and what about women who have gone through TFMR and mental health? It's not talked about. And I'm sat the other end of the sofa with this poor woman in between <laughs> us. And I'm like, yes, what about us, TFMR? It was fueled by the glasses of wine, wasn't it? I think I had two glasses of free wine. Yeah. And I was like, yes. right, this is our corner. I'm going to fight it now. Yeah, no, it was good because it also made me feel at ease because I was wasn't sure it's funny I signed up for it to go along and do it I'm like yeah it's great I'm gonna go and do this and then I got there and I thought oh god I don't I mean I know some of these people from social media but I don't know them and TFMR I mean I might just be presented with loads of people with other types of baby loss I'm not sure how well I'm going to be received so it was a relief that you were brave enough to to say that and uh, and we sort of found each other. There was a little bit of anger in there, actually. Yeah. Because I was like, it was all about stillbirth and neonatal death yeah. and miscarriage. And I don't want to not write those kind of baby loss types off. But I just thought, you know, what, what about us? Yeah. What about our corner? And I think that's what we've really found is that this form of baby loss is very silent. Very, very silent. Um, and I know Jane will have more to say about that from her experiences as well. But yeah, it's not 
included enough in the conversation. And so that's why we're here now with this podcast and wanting to just give it more space, not wait till next year, till the next Baby Loss Awareness Week. So Catherine, that leads me into, can you tell us, tell everyone listening about your experience with TFMR? Of course. Um, so back in 2017, it's such a long time ago, but not that long ago at all, really. Um, I found out I was pregnant and it was quite late on. We then had this 12-week scan um, and the measurement behind the neck was quite large with this gestation. So we got sent home, didn't really think anything of it. Now I think back, there were certain triggers. I think uh, I, just the way that the midwife was measuring it and the snogger was measuring it. So I got a call two days later to say we were at risk of Down syndrome based on my combined blood test results. Um, we were at the time one in 148. So we were right at that cutoff point. Um, so we, we had the NIPT test done a few weeks later and that came back as a positive result for Down syndrome. Um, then we went on to have an amniocentesis and that came back with Down syndrome and is it monosomy 21 from what I can gather. Um, so we made the decision, a very heartbreaking decision, after much deliberation and questioning. Um, me and my partner weren't on the same page at all, which was another issue that really affected our relationship. And we then made a decision to terminate um, at 17 weeks. So that was quite, uh, I can say horrific. It was, well, it was horrific, actually. It was one of the most deeply distressing experience of my life and I think partly due because I didn't know what to expect with my first child I had never been through labour before and no one had really told me anything um, the experience of the birth was quite difficult we weren't given the proper care that I know I can receive now at the time I didn't know what to do or whether to question it or anything like that so yeah it's just very very difficult to experience um, I didn't really know how to grieve we weren't given access to a bereavement midwife either um no one really knew about our pregnancy either so I didn't feel I could be open about the grief of losing a child um and then that was yeah quite difficult yeah <laughs> so yeah mm, yeah yeah so my um my experience is uh we lost Luna it'll be nearly four years now which again a little like Catherine it's like I can't believe it's been that long and also it doesn't feel that long. Yeah, so it'll be in January that we lost Luna. And again, similarly to Catherine, we found out that there was a problem at her 12-week scan. But they were a little more, I think maybe she had quite a lot of buildup of fluid around that nuchal sac. They, the word they used was cystic hygromas. So that was the sonographer was, was using that term. Um, and... I mean, all hell broke loose. We actually had Benjamin with us at the time. We have a son already. Um, he was just over two and a half at the time. We had been in the hospital all weekend with him. And so that's why he was with us. It was a Sunday. It, 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 so everybody's crammed into this room and um, then all hell breaks loose, really. Um, and we were sent off to, to have the blood work done and all of that. Thankfully, that midwife who did that blood work was just so calm, but lovely in it. You know, she wasn't, yeah. she wasn't, there was a lot of empathy and feeling there, but she was just very calm and reassuring. And that helped to just help pull the panic in. Cause I, I mean, I don't know about you, Catherine, but I went into full panic mode. I mean, I was full fear. 
I've never felt so terrified in my life. I don't think I've ever felt ever so terrified. I just wanted to run. I felt like a scared animal that just wanted to run. And thankfully that midwife was just helped bring me back down to earth a little bit. And then a couple of days later, we went into Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in town and saw the consultant. I had something called a CVS, which again, Jane will help us with the, with the, with the long terms. I can't remember what that stands for anymore, but um, that's where they take a sample of your um, placenta to test. And, you know, we got a chance to see her again and the consultant said, yes, cystic hygromas. This is either Turner syndrome. By then we had done some research and thought, mm, this looks like it could be Turner syndrome. Sometimes there's a mix of things going on. That result came back as positive for Turner syndrome and just Turner syndrome. And we decided to sort of carry on for a few more weeks, just have more scans and see what might materialize. Turner syndrome is a like Downs in that it's a spectrum disorder. It's always girls and women. It's always a female disorder. Um, they're missing an X chromosome. And that's what leads to their problems with, with development. Mm-hmm. Um, but the high functioning Turner's girls and women, I mean, there's Turner's girls and women walking around out there in the world that you wouldn't know that this is, this is what they have. And so we were faced with that, gosh, you know, very high functioning. This, she could have a very relatively really normal life. Yes, there will be health issues and things that she'll have to be um, looking after herself for, but, you know, there's opportunity there to have a relatively normal life or it's a spectrum. It can be, or it can kill you. So it's, it's, and it's everything in between. So very similar to Downs in that sort of way. Um, So we wanted to give it a few weeks to see what would happen, but eventually, you know, we had a sort of penultimate scan and we could, I could see on the screen that the fluid was just getting worse and worse. And the consultant just said, again, you know, this isn't going the way that we want it to be going it's it's up to you what you want to do really and from that point we we'd sort of hit our red line that her her chances of survival were pretty much nil and even if she did make it full term and was born live she would die within hours or or days and so at that point that was our yeah I don't want her to suffer so um, you know, a few days later, we went and met with a bereavement midwife. So this is different experience to you, Catherine. Um, bereavement suite. I was induced. I know. I think you were induced as well. Right? Yeah. Went was. through labor. Yeah. And um, yeah, and delivered her and spent time with her. And um, it's it's just she's changed my life, our lives, forever. Um, yeah. I think now we can say that they've changed our lives in a good way. Yes the work we're doing now but at the very beginning you're like you you just it's everything's negative yeah and it's like the grief is a single thing yeah and you know I don't know but it, I mean I felt this overwhelming love and grief all at the same time it was, it was so painful I yeah I such a confusing conflicting mix of emotions you mentioned about am I able to grieve am I allowed yeah you know, I felt that too you know, we've made a decision, haven't we? Yeah, but it feels inherently wrong. I think from society, that's always what comes across. Yeah, it just feels wrong to do this. So that's why we feel like, what? Well, how can we grieve? Like, do we have a right to grieve? Yeah, how can we grieve openly. 
exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so here we are three, four years down the road and able to talk about it with a bit more clarity. And with that, I'm going to bring Jane in. Hi, Jane. Hi, Hayley. Hi. Hi. And hi, Catherine. Hello. It's been amazing to listen to you both so eloquent about your, your experiences. And thank you for sharing those with us. It was amazing to hear. Oh, thanks, Jane. Um, Jane, you're the director of ARC. I am. Would you tell us a bit about ARC, what you do? Yeah, it might be helpful to go back a bit and talk about our history because we didn't start as ARC. We started life in the mid-80s as a charity called SATFA, Support After Termination for Fetal Abnormality. SATFA for short. Imagine trying to fundraise for that charity. Not <laughs> easy. I wasn't there. I, I hastened to add at that time. But it was really important that it started in that way. It was founded by a group of parents bereaved after termination and healthcare professionals who saw that their needs were not being met because at that time it was just the start when scans were getting better they were using amniocentesis more and so women were getting diagnoses at around 18 20 weeks and the doctors were kind of saying well we're really clever we've got these tools now we can diagnose things you can go and have an abortion get rid of this one and we'll give you a healthy baby next time God. And I don't have to tell you to, and the listeners, that that's so far from how it is. It, it is, it's a traumatic experience. It's incredibly distressing. Mm. And these women and couples had both practical and emotional needs because at the time too, there was really no information. They'd be told they were having this abortion and they would go through a labour and delivery. Again, you'll both attest to how harrowing that can be without any forewarning of that being told, well, it's like a miscarriage. <laughs> I can tell you my labour and delivery of Luna was not like a miscarriage. Mm. I have experienced yeah. miscarriages as well. It is not like a miscarriage. Yeah, exactly <laughs> that, exactly that. So what this group of people did at the time, the parents and health professionals, the first thing they did was put some information together, which became what was known as our handbook to be given to couples who were facing termination of pregnancy, just to give them a sense of what might be ahead. Not an easy read, but at least preparing them a bit for the fact that it could well be a prolonged labour and delivery. And we, we also wanted to make sure that emotional needs were met. So we set up the helpline so people could talk to us and get support around what you both described as a really complex experience. And I think it was interesting that both of you talked about whether you deserve to grieve mm -hmm. and that the, the the word that's often used is disenfranchised grief, that you, you feel you're not allowed to mm, yeah. because you're implicated in the loss, because you made a decision and you can be as robust as you, you can be about that decision, but it makes you feel, well, I made this happen. Exactly. Therefore, yeah. I don't deserve for people to feel sorry for me, to treat me like somebody that's had a stillbirth, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, that's so far from the truth because you've been dealt this extraordinary blow of having the diagnosis, which creates a grieving process in, its, in itself, in that whatever happens, you've lost the baby that you thought you were going to have. Yeah. That's changed completely at the moment of diagnosis. And then the doctors kind of say, well, do you know what? You've got a choice here. <laughs> and you are having to make this life-changing decision. You know it's life-changing in the white heat of the shock and distress of the diagnosis. And that is incredibly difficult to do. And so if anybody deserves emotional and psychological support, 
It's women and couples that have been through this. So that was the other arm of our work, the support, and working with healthcare professionals, because I think at the time we thought, if we're going to make sure that people are well looked after, we have to work very much in partnership with doctors, with midwives, with sonographers, to make sure they can deliver the best possible care in these circumstances. And although the circumstances are 10,000 times worse for the parents involved, health professionals struggle because it's quite challenging to be with people in acute distress. And I stress the acute. And I, I know the word's used a lot, but it is traumatic. Mm. And not everybody is good at being able to contain people who are almost out of control with their emotions. So mm. that's how we started. We've moved on since the 80s because we found that people were coming to us not just when they were facing termination or after termination, but when the scans had picked something up and they wanted to know what the next steps may be, etc. So we became ARC in the late 90s to better reflect that we were doing more than just working around termination. And between you and me, we also thought that might help the fundraising, that uh, by changing our name, we might get more money, which never happened. And interestingly, I think some women and couples were actually quite upset that we changed our name because they said, well, here's the only charity that's offering specific support around termination and you've taken it out of your name. What does that say? about, again, it being a shameful secret. Um, I think that it was right that we made that change, but also what, what needed to happen was that we were solid around the fact that we still offered ongoing support to people, to people that ended the pregnancy and still very supportive of that choice, with the caveat that we are supportive of choice, that we're not in the business of encouraging people to go one way or another. Mm. But with the best will in the world, I think at Art, we deal with and I hate to say it, the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things that can go wrong in a pregnancy. Thankfully, they don't often do. We can't be expert in all those conditions. So we do signposts for those people that are continuing to the Down Syndrome Association, to Shine, the, the charity for spina bifida. And so we still offer ongoing support for those that end the pregnancy. So that's really where we are now. We're an organisation that supports parents right through screening, diagnosis, decision-making, bereavement, and work. We're very lucky. We've only got eight staff, and we also work with health professionals, do training, and policymakers as well. So we punch above our weight, I like to think. And media as well. I think you've got to try and get more into the media. Yeah, we do quite a lot in the media. And we talk about termination in this context because I think people want to differentiate between those when people end a pregnancy that's unwanted and this circumstance when it's wanted so and termination moves it away from that very loaded word abortion mm -hmm. same thing but abortion is a word that's used to, to talk about the polarized debate etc but because it's the same thing it is ethically incredibly sensitive and mm just because we're an organization that supports choice we've come in for quite a lot of criticism for not encouraging people to continue pregnancies yeah, that's a lack of informed and understanding and then just judgment from others yeah absolutely and you mentioned it Catherine earlier and I think it's interesting how there is this conflict for many many women because they're ending a wanted pregnancies that, that there's always something not because they doubt their decision they think their decision is the right one at the time in the circumstances 
but it's a wanted baby. Yeah. And for many women, there's always some attention about that, some conflicted feelings about that. And that can build into believing that, oh, I'm a bad mother because I ended my pregnancy and the world is going to judge me because I'm judging myself in that way. Yeah. And part of our job is very much to help people accept their decision, to accept that there wasn't, you know, there's not a morally better decision here. There are just different decisions. That's also a societal thing. We're, we're led to believe that we must be pregnant and continue the pregnancy at all costs, no matter what. And yeah, I think that the difficulty we have at the moment in the societal bit is that there is a noisy minority who are very strong opinion, fired up by people who are anti-abortion, who are anti-choice. And the silent majority, in fact, are very supportive and not judgmental. And I actually was thinking just that, you know, that actually I think the silent majority is more... Um, compassionate and understanding and yes it is Mm. that loud minority that gets hurt unfortunately and that's actually why that's also also why we're here doing this podcast is because it's so important that people hear what it's actually like and that they can feel that they are not alone there's something like was it five thousand women yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah, think yeah. in the UK every year. Yeah, it's very hard to have robust statistics, but we can, yeah, we can surmise there are at least 5,000. Yeah. And what I find interesting about that stat is it's probably the case that there are more terminations for medical reasons than there are stillbirths. And yet, stillbirth yeah. is much more talked about. SANS, a great charity that supports people who've been through stillbirth and neonatal death, I have to say, are it's a much easier organization to fundraise than we are they get a lot more support yeah. etc when in fact there are more of these experiences that happen i'm not trying to create some hierarchy but it no I no think but i think it's just about that's just it and it's like this is how many people it's affecting every year and it's not just the women who it affects mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm, the fathers mm-hmm. of these babies the partners the wider siblings. family any siblings uh you know it's it's a massive amount of people that this affects yeah so therefore, there is going to be a big majority of people yep. who understand the complexities. But do you think we're more able to talk about it because we've arrived at that acceptance? Well, so I know for me, I mean, I wasn't on social media when we first lost Luna. And I took about two years before I came onto social media and started talking about what I've been through. So I did two years of processing Um, to be able to get to a place where I felt quite confident in what I wanted to say. And actually, even then I was a bit tentative. So I've I've mentioned very briefly that I've had miscarriages as well. I started from the miscarriage point of view. Luna was always there, but I, I wasn't using the language TFMR at the beginning, partly because I didn't actually have that language. I know that may sound really bizarre, but, but that language wasn't used with me with my hospital, with my bereavement midwife. And it wasn't until I came into social media that I found that terminology, even with ARCs. So I accessed ARCs support in the parent um, support network. And I can't remember that language being used between myself and that other parent support worker on the, on the phone when I spoke. Yeah, I mean, I think I can probably chip in and talk about this a little bit because it is a more recent term. Okay. No question. It, it's something that has come out of that kind of hashtag social media scene and it's been taken up. I think it's interesting because there's been a lot of discussion about language and obviously 
the word termination itself is pretty harsh, pretty mm. horrible. And we're lobbied fairly regularly to make the language kinder. Yes, and compassionate induction. Compassionate induction, manage miscarriage. Yeah. I mean, we take the lead, obviously, we're not going to make people describe their experience in a particular way, but I think as an organization, we've always felt it's very important. And you, you two have said it in a way that women are enabled to accept that they made a decision, they made a choice. And what termination does is, is say that I was given an option to end the pregnancy and that's the option I took. Mm. Compassionate induction takes the agency away. Yeah. It suggests that somebody else did this to me and I didn't have any control. The other issue with compassionate induction is that it may be used to describe a medical termination of pregnancy, so labor and induction. It doesn't successfully describe the surgical termination. It instantly excludes those women who had a surgical termination. So we will carry on talking about termination. Um, we do use termination for medical reasons too, because that's become the parlance. I think again, there's an interesting, we're talking about medical reasons. And I think again, that can make the suggestion that it was done because it was medically advised. Mm. There's nothing wrong with that. It brings into the tent, for example, people who perhaps had cancer and had to end their pregnancy because they were having cancer treatment or have really serious hyperemesis gravidarum and have to end their pregnancy for that reason. It brings everybody into the tent, which is no bad thing, but still I want women and couples to be able to own their experience and accept it. And part of our job really is to reassure people that it's okay that you made that decision. Yes. That's exactly where we were heading, I think, with this podcast and distinguishing and providing understanding about, I guess, abortion and termination. I mean, they are so connected, but they are totally different. And I think that's where we wanted to go to help other people understand to then lead to families accepting their decisions. Jane, I wanted to ask, just going back to that decision, how you support um, women and families with making their decision. You know, if someone's listening right now and is going through this right now. How would you as an organization be supporting them? Okay, so the best scenario would be to be able to see that couple, that woman face to face. We can't, we could offer that before when people were in London, but what it would be usually is telephone. And lots of what we do is around giving people the time and space to work out the best way forward in their particular circumstances. So I mentioned it before, I think what our helpline team are skilled at is containing people, mm. is making people feel safe when they're feeling very out of control. They're still going to be very distressed, there's no getting away from that, but then in helping them to just contain their anxieties, make sure they've got all the information they feel they need. So we have a good overview of where the centers of excellence are for different clinical support. Then it's checking that they've got the information they need about what the potential outcomes could be. So that might be signposting them to other organizations that know what life can be like with a particular condition. And then when they've done all that, they can still feel, well, they still don't know what to do. So it's sitting with them really and helping them work out what are the main factors that they're bringing to their decision. For some, it may be their capacity to deal with uncertainty. 
For others, it may be what it means to their relationship. Others may be worried about the children they have, the children they're going to have. There are commonalities, I think, but there are factors that individuals will bring to this decision Mm. and help them in a safe place to understand those and accept their decision. Again, I'd be interested to what the two of you think. I think there are a number of women and couples who tentatively start to make a decision. And that's there. What takes the time is to come to an acceptance of that. Mm. So again, it's giving them that kind of trusting place where they can start to explore what they never imagined they'd have to explore before. Well, I, I'm going to be really honest here and talk about that roller coaster because when we were given at 12 weeks, there's, there's something seriously wrong here. And I panicked. I talked about that. I felt complete terror. And my initial, very initial response, and I can remember this so visceral, it was like, stop this Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Stop this pregnancy now. I don't want to go any further. It was so terrified. It was just like, just stop it now. I don't want to know anymore. I don't want to go any further. And then we went into that room with that midwife, calmed down, brought back to earth, Mm. uh, breathe. (laughs) Okay, let's see what's going on here. It was so excruciating those two days before Mm, seeing the mm. consultant but we went into overdrive with research it'd been burned into my brain cystic hygroma so we got back home and we're googling um and came across turner's syndrome so once we started looking at that and kind of looking at this as a spectrum disorder if this is what it is then what are we dealing with here this isn't necessarily a death sentence we don't know exactly what we're dealing with here so you know, once we got our diagnosis, once we could see what was going on, we could start kind of formulating things. Um, I got in touch with the Turner's Syndrome Society, I think that they are called. I got information from them. I spoke to the woman who was the director, um, you know, spoke to her on the phone. She was lovely and really, and also very real yes yes i know her actually i've done it for several years yeah Yeah. she was not there was no sort of like sugarcoating which was was really grateful for so i didn't feel like she was sort of saying you must carry on with this pregnancy you know there was none of that and the consultant you know he had sort of said i think you'll miscarry this is he's looking very poorly with this um so it was a kind of process i'm also actually very grateful that we found out at 12 weeks rather than 20 weeks because that gave us time. So our sense at the beginning was that if we can get to a place where she could be born live and have a good chance of living a good life, then maybe we're, we're in for this, you know. But if it's looking like her chances are very, very slim to none, that's where our red line is. So I'm grateful that we had time to be able to work that out. Whereas if we had had a scan at 20 weeks, women who have that happen have a very short window to come to terms well they do i mean it depends really in relation to what's diagnosed because the law does enable much later terminations terminations post 24 weeks post the the limit for most terminations dependent on the circumstances but obviously it, it shifts in that before 24 weeks really and truly if a woman or couple want to end the pregnancy They can, because they can say to their doctors, this is what we want to do. And the doctors will sign it off, whatever. Mm -hmm. After 24 weeks, 
the doctors then have to be the ones that decide that the condition warrants termination. So it becomes the doctor's decision to offer the termination of pregnancy. So it shifts. Mm. So it, it doesn't happen. A whole other bag of complexities there. Absolutely. And yeah. thankfully, certainly in my time at ARC, things have changed in relation to diagnoses being made earlier. Much more now can be picked up. You mentioned CVS, Haley, the chorionic villus sampling, when the diagnostic test that takes a little bit of placental tissue mm. to look for chromosomal and genetic conditions, that can be performed from 10 weeks of pregnancy. Mm. So those diagnoses can be made earlier. The scanning equipment is that much better that someone like Professor Kipros Nicolaides at King's says they can pick up more at 12 weeks now than they can at 20. Gosh, yeah. So things have, sh have shifted that most diagnoses now can be made earlier, but by no means all. And some will be picked up at 20 weeks and some of the agonizing calls we get are from women who have a scan at 28 weeks to check where the placenta is and bang, they see something going on with the baby's brain yeah. and they're confronted with the decision just when they thought they were on the last lap of the pregnancy. Catherine, what was your experience? Because I know you were early with Bud as well. You were at 12 weeks, um, your scan. What was your sort of experience of that roller coaster? Um, we, yeah, we had to scan everything else looked absolutely fine. But I remember he was very wriggly that day and she couldn't quite get a decent measurement. She just over and over again was measuring it. And I do remember now like the urgency in her voice. Mm. Um, but we left that day with no inclination about what was going to happen. I think it was a Thursday by the following Monday. I'd had a phone call saying like, these are your combined blood test results combined with the black bit behind the back of the neck you know we think you're at risk and this is your one in however many chance I was thinking you know, another two or three either side you wouldn't have even had that phone call so I was trying to pick like 148 women in a room and trying to be that one and you're you know it was something from like 99.6 percent chance you were going to be okay so it's such a slim margin to hold on to that we weren't going to be okay and um, we got advised to have the NIP, NIPT um so we did have to wait for a little bit for that. And once we'd had it done, we got given results, which came late one Monday afternoon. And that was just to say that he tested positive for Down syndrome and we were next advised to have amniocentesis. And at the time I was in London, um, my hostel was in Nottingham. They couldn't, they couldn't fit us in for another week for more testing anyway. So we decided to have it done privately. But I think when we were liaising with the hospital in Nottingham, it was very apparent. I felt under pressure to make a decision there and then. Mm. And they were very much, right, okay, you're going to have a termination then. There was no thing. Well, I, really? I, I, yeah, it was, it, was, it was bank holiday weekend as well at Easter. But it, there was no, so have you decided what you're going to do? Here's some support around what, if you want to continue the pregnancy. It was straight away, it was into the termination. Okay, um, I'm really then, shocked by that. Can I just say that right now, that I, I find that really yeah, me too. hard to hear? Me too. It, it was because I, I didn't know any different. And we, we had the whole weekend to decide as a couple about what we were going to do. But they said on the Monday before they rang off, because they shot on the Friday, it was Good Friday, um, or we booked you a place in the ward on a Tuesday morning for the termination. Here are the details. Do you have any inclination why they were so in such a hurry for you to have a termination? What was, was, I, I, was there any sort of. I don't of... know because they didn't even have the results because it was all done privately they not as if they'd done the actual amniocentesis and they had all the results we didn't have the full results either we literally had the initial results 
Um, so we were making a decision based on those initial results. So, so listening to this, this is what I think maybe is the problem, what people may see as this the sort of ethical things that you sort of mentioned, Jane, yeah, you know, that this Catherine's experience might sort of speak to that, that what people well, who have sure, questions about sure. the ethics, hearing Catherine's version, that would, you know, alarm them. Absolutely. It alarms me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. And, and we've, again, since we started life, we've been involved in training health professionals and we, we run one day that's called supporting parents decisions. And we look at, how you can support parents whichever way they go and that's really really important to us that professionals don't make assumptions and i think that has been an issue and it's not necessarily because healthcare professionals think that's what people should do it's because it's been what most people have done and it's making so, assumptions yeah mm. they've been used to that pathway and so they think well that's what they're going to do because that's what most yeah. people do. It doesn't necessarily come from, I mean, you could argue it's unconscious bias, but it mm. doesn't come from a place where they're thinking, well, of course, she really should end this pregnancy because she's had a diagnosis. I mean, pushy and reluctant are two words that spring to mind because when we were actually went into have determination and we were having a wander around while we were waiting for the tablets to work, we passed the fetal medicine unit and I said, let's go in and see what our blood test results were because I was, I'd done a lot of research and I really wanted to know what the parameters were as well. And we've gone into ask and although they were obliging in coming to talk to us they said you don't need to know this information what do you want this for so they were very reluctant handing it over and it did take a lot of my resilience to go yeah. these are my results yeah. this is my pregnancy yeah. this is my baby I need to know this and even though I didn't really understand what I was looking at, at the time it still felt like well why why can't I have the information that I deserve really so I can understand better about why I'm making this choice so yeah, it was a very very difficult I just wanted to I don't know if Catherine if you feel comfortable maybe talking about it in more detail but you just mentioned about you and your partner having different positions mm. on this and that that was difficult did you want to say anything more about that yeah no I don't I don't mind because I think a lot of couples could be on the same page like he was very practical he was more worried about financial aspects about one of us not working again how we would where we would live, how our house would be adapted if we had to cater for a child with certain needs, um, where I was the emotional aspect of it all. And I think part of me was very angry that he was cut off from that or he didn't express his emotional needs around it. Whereas I was like, I'm carrying this child, I have to give birth to this child. Like I feel like I, I am physically taking that tablet to end this pregnancy. Mm. Um, and I've got all those complex emotions, whereas he's detached from that because it's not his body. Whereas I, at the time, I was like, I couldn't care less about what our future is. I want to see how our child is going to develop. So I, mean, I think he was quite angry at the fact that I wasn't considering his um, feelings on this and I was vice versa as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in, in our experience, most of the time couples do come together on this. They may take different times to come together on it. But we do, obviously, what we can really offer is speakerphone, but it can sometimes be helpful to speak to somebody that's not connected, that's an independent ear that can encourage each to listen to each other. And I think you nailed on the head really yeah. there, Catherine, it's so difficult for women when they're carrying the baby and their first instinct is to protect and nurture that baby they're carrying. Absolutely. To hear their partner talk in very abstract and rational and practical terms about 
we need to end this pregnancy because of X, Y, Z is very hard to hear. Yeah. You're suddenly confronted with, well, who's going to advocate for this baby I'm carrying? Everyone seems to have made this decision yeah. around me. And here I am, the mother of this baby, this baby that is part of me. Nobody's speaking up for them. Yeah, and I was like, what about him? What about his life? We didn't know how his life was going to pan out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that can feel very difficult for many women. Very, very difficult, I think. I I do remember, like, leaving his parents' house to drive back to Nottingham to have the termination and then coming back, you know, a couple of days later and no one said anything. No one said a word. No one said, I'm sorry for your loss. No one acknowledged it. It even happened. No one acknowledged I was pregnant and not pregnant. This is nothing, and I was just felt like I was screaming, going, "But, but look what's happened! Just someone t- say what's happened." And it is, I think that I just couldn't express the emotions because I wasn't mm. in that space. I don't think, and that that in turn, like obviously, the grief just made like a snowball eventually. Yeah, it can make you feel quite crazy, really, isn't it? It's like, has this actually happened? I mean, yeah. you have this weird thing that you've just given birth, and there's no baby to show for it. And your body is doing all the things that it does after it's given birth. And then if people don't acknowledge, it's a real, I'm going to drop the F-bomb here. It's a real head fuck. (laughs) And it's something that actually I think in a future episode we could talk about in more detail. And also the partner perspective I think would be a really interesting one to talk about to get their feelings. Because I think that it's something that a lot of people will relate to. Yeah. Um, Jane, I, we're going to do this with all of our guests. We're going to come, come sort of wrap it up. We're calling it the TFMR takeaways. Okay. <laughs> and, I, and we're asking everyone two questions. First one is, uh, what advice would you give women and families either facing a TFMR or having just recently undergone a TFMR? So what piece of advice would you give to them? And the second one is, what hope can you offer to women and families who have undergone a TFMR? Okay, with with the first question, I think it goes back to what we were talking about before, to recognise that they're in an extraordinarily distressing and difficult set of circumstances and to feel able to ask for help and support. Yeah. That doesn't make them weak and because they're making a decision, that doesn't preclude the fact that they should get help and support from wherever they may find that, including us at ARC, but to to feel that they're allowed to have that. In relation to to hope for the future, I often find myself saying to women and couples, and I can never believe it myself, that I've been with art for 19 years now, nearly 20 years. So in that time, I've probably worked with, we're going into the thousands of women and couples. Now, I I couldn't be on this podcast now talking to you about this if all those women and couples went through this and were defined by it and never moved forward, never regained hope and positivity, I'm living testimony to the fact that that happens because mm. I've seen it over and over again. That's not to minimize, and I don't have to tell you, Aileen, Catherine, yeah. how awful this experience is, but it's quite inspiring to me that women, couples, families find the strength to get through and come out the other side and you, both of you touched on it. I mean, you're, you're four or five years on now. And so you can look back in a different way. Mm, objectively, and yeah. people, and I hate the phrase because it feels a bit hippy-dippy um, and woo-woo, but positive growth from trauma is real. Mm. It's real. People are able to find out of this 
one of the most awful you'd hope of experiences they will ever encounter in their lives, they're able to find something meaningful, something positive, something optimistic. Yeah. And so that's the other thing I want to leave people with. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Jane. Um, it's been great having you on. Really appreciate your time and being on our first episode. Um, well, thanks for having me. It's been yeah, great. it's Thank been lovely you. talking to you. Well, I'll be listening in. I can tell. Oh, good, you. good, good, good. No, no the pressure. <laughs> and I just wanted to say, um, if so, listeners, how can they get in touch with you? What's the best way to get in touch with you if they need you? Okay, so to support, we have a helpline number. It's o two o seven seven one three seven four eight six now because of our friend um, covid we're not quite working at capacity at the moment so if people have trouble getting through to that number just email us at info at arc uk.org and arrange a call back and if it's an emergency the mobile number to use is 07875 480 076 so we really want people to make contact we know some particularly at the beginning of the first lockdown people were reticent to make contact with support organizations because they thought oh, we're in the middle of a pandemic we shouldn't bother people please 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 do feel able to make contact good and if people wanted to get in contact with you about helping you supporting arc um how's the best way to to do that again dropping us an email so we can talk about that i'm gonna say and, and plug that we do there is a donate button on our website at www.arc-uk.org because every little helps we are uh, no we we're not an easy charity as we've been discussing to attract funding to so if anybody is able to make a donation that's fantastic too brilliant thank you jane um thank you Catherine as well and I just wanted to say to everyone please tune in for episode two where we will be talking to Sally and Sally is a midwife specializing in bereavement care she was also my bereavement midwife um, she's lovely we're going to be speaking to her about the more technical medical side of TFMR and the care for women and families I want to thank the listeners again for tuning in. You can find us on Instagram at time to talk TFMR. You can email us at talktfmr at yahoo.com. Please let us know your thoughts and experiences and any ideas for future episodes. Yeah, come back to again soon. <laughs> Take care of yourselves out there. Look after each other. <laughs> <laughs>